Matthew 27, and beginning at verse 26. Then released he, that is Pilate, released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him, and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him, and took the reed, and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his inspired and infallible word for his name's sake. Let us join briefly in prayer. Gracious Father and eternal God, we come now in the name of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, whose death we come to remember today. We pray, O Lord, that thy Spirit will enable the proclamation of thy word to lead us in our minds to the place of preparation to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. O Lord, we pray today that thy Spirit will fill me with his power to the very uttermost and grant the grace that is needed today to proclaim the truth concerning Christ, to exalt him, and that all will be drawn unto him. Hear us, O Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The treatment of the Son of God, of which we have read, was a situation in which cruelty had no bounds. We hear the call to remember Christ at the Lord's table today as the call to remember that the Savior's suffering went far beyond anything that anyone else has ever endured. Not to minimize the suffering that others have endured. But whatever that suffering is, that which Jesus suffered went far beyond it. The process of crucifixion, as the Romans practiced it, was degrading and full of anguish. Most who received that sentence of death 
were from the bottom rung of society. And the Romans treated them like dogs. Generally, those victims had to endure a vicious flogging or scourging before soldiers took them to the place of their execution. That the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure such an ordeal himself was not exceptional. But in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was additional humiliation that other condemned people did not face. Three of the gospel writers record aspects of this treatment of Christ. But Matthew's account provides the most detail. It depicts how the Roman soldiers who carried out the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth singled him out for treatment that was brutally degrading. Beyond the debilitating scourging of the Savior, the soldiers joined to ridicule him in a way that expressed their contempt for the Jewish people. You have to remember that the Roman soldiers in Palestine were considered to be on hardship duty. Some of their comrades had already died in actions to enforce imperial edicts against the local population. Ambushes and assassinations of the soldiers added to the death toll and generated, you may understand, among the soldiers a deep hatred for the Jewish population that burst forth on this occasion in this treatment of the one who was the king of the Jews. It was part of the suffering that the father called his only begotten son to bear as judgment for the sins of the son's people. That suffering, that humiliation of Christ, is what the Lord calls us to remember today as we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. The one who displayed such great compassion for us in that he had us on his mind in the midst of this suffering deserves our sympathy in the midst of all that he endured. Let the sight of our Lord in these few verses in Matthew's gospel arouse our pity for him and our sorrow over the degradation he endured for our sakes. All of the animosity of depraved humanity broke into the open in the brief period of which we have read, as those soldiers acting not only for themselves, 
but for all the descendants of Adam engaged in the acts of persecuting the perfect man. And I want you to think on that theme with me as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning. Persecuting the perfect man. We read a lot about persecution in our time. And there are followers of Jesus Christ in the world today who endure persecution for that cause. But none of them are perfect. Here was a perfect man who was persecuted and hounded to death. Part of the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to arouse compassion in our souls for our blessed Savior and to stir sorrow that our transgressions against God's law reduced the holy and harmless Son of God to such a place. The further purpose of the Lord's Supper is that this remembrance should restrain our wickedness and provide the incentive to follow the Lord's command to be holy as he is holy. So let us remember him this morning as we consider three aspects of this part of his suffering. First, brutal savagery. While it is true that many who were condemned to be crucified endured Roman scourging before their deaths, there is the suggestion that in, in this passage that the Romans singled out our Lord, for especially savage treatment. Those who were to be scourged were usually stripped to the waist and their hands were bound to a post with their feet positioned in such a way that the back was stretched out. With the flagellum, a device with strips of leather embedded with pieces of bone and metal, the scourger would lash the back by flinging the strips across the back and pulling the flagellum back in a violent manner that ripped open the flesh. The first and second blows generally left red welts across the back. But with subsequent lashes, blood ran from the wounds. The combination of the rhythmic blows and the pain of the wounds and the loss of blood weakened the victim rapidly. Usually the beatings went on with great force for a lengthy period. And often the prisoners would faint. Expert Roman scourgers were adept 
at that point at suspending the beating long enough to allow the prisoner to recover some strength. And then the beating resumed. Some have said that they knew how to bring a person to the edge of death without pushing him over the edge. Even so, and perhaps there were varying levels of skill, there were more than a few cases where the scourging did lead to the death of the prisoner. We find it difficult for all the words that we use to describe it to comprehend the severity of this beating that our Savior endured. The purpose of the scourging was to remove any resistance from those whom the Roman authorities condemned to crucifixion. And yet, this scourging of Jesus fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy, and it was part of our redemption. Let us turn to the Old Testament, to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53. And you can keep a mark in this passage, for we shall refer to it later. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And notice, and with his stripes we are healed. Those stripes that I've tried to describe Described that the scourging laid on the back of our Lord Jesus, according to Isaiah, were the instruments of our healing. We must remember that persecution as we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. We are to do so in remembrance of him. Still, the treatment of our Lord was especially savage because the soldiers took out all their frustration on this one who was supposed to be the king of the Jews. And they didn't stop there. For we come to the second aspect of these sufferings, Brazen mockery. The treatment that our Lord received, of which we have read, was especially humiliating. The whole band of soldiers gathered in the common hall, or as Mark calls it, the praetorium. It was 
an area of the governor's palace that was the base for the soldiers. When they were off duty, that is where they would be. Perhaps some of the soldiers witnessed the scourging of Jesus of Nazareth from a distance. But we read here that the whole band, the whole cohort, a group of several hundred soldiers assembled for this additional humiliation. And the irony is great. Here was the perfect man, but he received treatment far more humiliating than any other imperfect man. They stripped Jesus of his clothing. Now there's some debate about whether that was in whole or in part. The Romans had very few compunctions about the embarrassment that people might feel to be completely stripped. But no one knows for sure. When they were crucified, they were completely stripped. So they took off at least the top part of his clothing and wrapped a short Roman cape around his shoulders. It is called scarlet here in Matthew. Mark refers to it as purple. But there was a tendency to class the range of this color group broadly so that it was possible to call the cape either scarlet or purple. Undoubtedly, the garment was old and discarded, worn, perhaps shabby, and by using it, the soldiers meant to degrade Jesus even more. So they put that around his shoulders. And then they made a crown for him. We read of that in verse 29. They platted a crown of thorns. Now, most people in this part of the world, when they hear about thorns, they think about rose bushes that have thorns. The thorns of which we read here were far more dangerous. And you see on some desert plants, very long thorns. So they used very long thorns and they put them into a crown and then they pressed that crown down into his scalp. So it wasn't just a matter of it sitting on top of his head. They pressed it down. And into his hands, we read, they, they placed a reed. A reed was a plant that usually provided strong material for walking sticks. So it was not a cattail or a similar reed such as we might consider, but it was something substantial. And that was the king's scepter. He had a crown, he had a robe, he had a scepter. And then they all bowed down before him and sarcastically proclaimed him king of the Jews. 
In other gospel accounts, we learn that the soldiers struck him with their hands. Matthew recorded here that they used the scepter, the cane, the walking stick to beat him on the head. And with every blow on his head, those thorns drove more deeply into our Lord's scalp, and his blood ran down all sides of his head and neck. And then we read that the soldiers spat on him. And when you think of the number of men involved, a cohort of several hundred soldiers, you can understand the volume of spittle that they spewed. On him. The purpose was to show their contempt. And remarkably, Jesus said nothing while he endured it all. The prophet Isaiah predicted our Lord's silence as well in that same passage in Isaiah 53, and this time at verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. The prophet says it twice. It's a remarkable prophecy. Here was Jesus in a position that almost every other person who occupied was full of cursing and invective against his executors, executioners. But Isaiah said regarding Jesus, he openeth not his mouth. He said nothing. No screams issued from him. He did not vow to get revenge on his tormentors. He sat there and said nothing. And when the soldiers accomplished all that they thought was required or all of which they were capable, they sent Jesus on to his death. And that's the third thing we come to, methodical certainty. These people knew what they were doing. They were very adept. There were no botched executions in the hands of the Romans. After the soldiers exhausted themselves, they put the clothes of Jesus back on him, and the detail that was to carry out the execution began its progress away from the governor's palace And toward Golgotha. And in the minds of the Romans, 
There was nothing unusual about Jesus of Nazareth except that he was the king of the Jews. To them, he was another Jewish slave they would no longer have to fear. It was to them just another in a long sequence of executions that they hoped would restrain the populace. They were all public. There was no concern about anything sanitary and dignified. They were all public, and that was meant to say to the populace, you cross us, you'll end up here. It was only when it was over, only at the end of the execution, that one of the soldiers... The centurion and those who were with him recognized the historic significance of what they witnessed there. The soldiers watched Jesus. We read in this chapter, sitting down, they watched him there. They watched the patient sufferer through his agonizing ordeal. But when Jesus of Nazareth died, the only one who ever died by a conscious act of his will, they witnessed also the impressive effects that followed his death. And if we look down in the chapter at verse 50, we find that account. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost with a loud voice. Here was not someone whose strength was all gone. He cried with a loud voice and yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake, And those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Only then did some recognize what they had witnessed. As the Son of God, Jesus offered himself to the Father as the only sacrifice for the sins of his people. The battering of his body and the pouring out of his blood and the yielding up of his spirit crowned the mission of redemption for which he came into the world. Recently we observed again the coming of Christ at his first advent. Not everyone 
in remembering that event, remembers the purpose for his coming into the world. It was to redeem his people. Those soldiers for whom the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth was another in a series of necessary procedures had no idea of God's purpose in all that they did. They did not know the Old Testament prophecies and probably had little concept of their need for salvation. Later, not too much later, the apostles underscored the ultimate responsibility for the murder of Jesus of Nazareth. Let us turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Verse 23. Him, that is Jesus of Nazareth, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So Peter was indicating that this was all part of God's plan. But that did not excuse the wicked actions of those who cried out, let him be crucified. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, verse 13, Peter preaching after the healing of the lame man at the gate beautiful, said, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. The point is that the methodical certainty that the Roman soldiers displayed in their conduct of the crucifixion was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Even though the Roman soldiers understood little or nothing about it. We do not have that excuse. We come to remember today at the Lord's table the anguish of the persecution of the perfect man, the God-man. All that came before the crucifixion that we have considered was part of the suffering for which the Father sent his only begotten Son into the world. We do well to contemplate today all that our Savior endured to deliver us from the curse of God's law. 
For ultimately, that was the transaction which the sufferings of Jesus secured. We trust that God will enable us today, as we remember Christ, to focus our minds upon this persecution of the perfect man. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we find that even after hearing the word and considering various aspects of it, we find that there is a hardness of our hearts that keeps us back from a full remembrance of the persecution of this perfect man. Oh, we pray today for the gracious ministry of thy spirit in our midst, that thou wilt take up the word and use it and apply it to our souls, and to grant, O Lord, that we may indeed find sympathy in our souls for the suffering of our Savior. O Lord, we pray for thy blessing on the word that has gone forth, and we pray, O Lord, that thou wilt undertake for us here as we now come to receive and to partake of the elements of this supper. Hear our cry, we pray, and continue with us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.